Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Wagner Review podcast. I'm Emily Finkelstein, an MPA PNP student, here to speak with you about the U.S. Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, and campaign finance. Today, we will hear from Hazel Millard. Hazel is a senior research and program associate at the Brennan Center for Justice, a nonpartisan policy and law institute affiliated with NYU School of Law. Hazel's work focuses on money and politics. I am very excited to have the opportunity to speak with her today, but first, a bit of background on Citizens United. Citizens United was a landmark Supreme Court decision, which has greatly impacted campaign finance within the United States. In January 2008, Citizens United, a nonprofit far-right organization, released a film about then-Senator Hillary Clinton prior to the Democratic Party's 2008 presidential primary elections. Citizens United was seeking to pay cable companies to make the film widely available at no cost to viewers and wished to do so within 30 days of the 2008 primary elections. Citizens United recognized that this activity would be in clear violation of the 2002 Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, known as the McCain-Feingold Act, which prevented companies and unions from purchasing ads or other forms of paid media, which was either in support or in opposition to a political candidate within close timeframes to elections. Citizen United sought to challenge the law by suing the Federal Election Commission, the commission responsible for setting campaign finance laws. The case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ultimately found in a 5-4 ruling that political spending is a form of protected speech under the First Amendment, and the government may not prevent corporations or unions from spending money to support or denounce individual candidates in elections. This historic decision overturned a 100-year-old precedent, which permitted the government to monitor and regulate campaign spending by corporations and unions. The majority voters, Justices Kennedy, Roberts, Alito, Scalia, and Thomas, argued, among other things, that the First Amendment protects not just a person's right to speak, but the act of speech itself, regardless of the speaker. As such, the First Amendment protects the speech of corporations and unions, regardless of whether we consider them to be people. They also argued that although the government has the authority to prevent corruption or, quotes, the appearance of corruption, it has no place in determining whether large political expenditures are either of those things, so it may not impose spending limits on that basis. And lastly, the majority voters argued that the public has the right to hear all available information on political candidates and spending limits would prevent information from reaching the public. The dissenting voters, Justices Stevens, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor, argued, among other things, that the First Amendment protects only the speech of individuals. And finally, the public has the right to hear all available information, and when corporations spend money that individuals cannot match themselves, messages from corporations will then be louder than the messages of individuals, and thus messages of individuals will not reach the public. 
I find that the dissenting voter's final argument to be the most compelling, and an idea upon which we will elaborate during this podcast. Now that we have a bit more context on Citizen United, I am proud to introduce Hazel Millard. It is important to note that Hazel and I recorded this podcast in late 2020, and when Hazel mentions last year, she is referring to 2019. I will be providing some updates on campaign finance in 2021 at the end of the interview. Hi, Hazel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. We'll get right into the first question. Opponents of the landmark case, Citizens United, believe that a potential response ruling is to increase transparency around special interest spending through the implementation of more rigorous disclosure legislation. What obstacles have advocates faced when seeking to support such legislation? I think the major obstacle advocates face when it comes to stronger disclosure laws is resistance from the dark money groups that don't want to disclose their donors. These groups have become really powerful spenders. Together, since 2010, dark money groups have spent a billion dollars on federal elections. They fight to protect their secrecy, and they've even gone to court to challenge some current disclosure laws that are on the books. But People rightfully want to know who's funding their elections, and reasonable disclosure laws are designed to do just that. They can help reveal special interest spending that, you know, is designed to skew an election. On a more positive note, there are a number of jurisdictions that have these really sensible disclosure laws and give voters the information they need while not being too burdensome on the organizations. And there's also an effort at the federal level to bring this transparency about through H.R. 1, which is this omnibus democracy reform bill passed by the House last year. So do you believe that Citizens United possibly lead to corruption? You know, Citizens United was one of a number of decisions in recent years that have worked to deregulate our campaign finance systems. You know, we're talking about a system that was originally designed to increase the integrity of our campaign finance systems. And it's being taken apart and anti-corruption is still a purpose served by campaign finance reforms that respond to Citizens United. Of course, bribery is a concern, but I think graduating beyond that, the major focus and concern right now in relation to these decisions is how they have led to just this massive explosion of big money in our elections. Though it may not be legally labeled as corruption, we do exist in this political world in which the more money you have, the more likely you'll see your concerns and your priorities reflected in policy. So we're seeing the voices of constituents getting completely drowned out by by big donors, by special interest groups. And the, the data shows that this is happening in 2018 in the midterms, contributions from just a few thousand mega donors, these are people giving $100,000 or more, uh, made up a greater share of all of the money raised during those midterms than contributions from millions of small donors. Those are people giving 200 or less. And this is a dynamic that happened in 2018, it happened in 2016. So I think that's really our focus on the money and politics team at the Brennan Center. We're, we're fighting for reforms that are going to reorient candidates away from these big donors and towards small donors who are typically more representative of constituents. One of those reforms is public financing, which is a big part of of our work right now. I'm glad that you brought up public financing, as I do think it's very interesting. 
In response to the public outcry calling for money and politics reform, various cities have implemented public financing systems. New York City, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, for example, established small donor matching systems. The program provides for the matching of small donations with public funds. Seattle has a similar system whereby residents receive a collection of vouchers totaling to $100 to donate to candidates of their choice. Can you explain a little bit more about the public financing method? Where do the funds for the program derive from? Yeah, so I can talk about kind of the big picture uh, elements of public financing and then jump into funding. Public financing is an effective, constitutionally permissible solution to the money and politics problem. The reform is growing in popularity. Like you mentioned, in the last 10 years, over a dozen jurisdictions have either created new public financing programs or strengthened existing ones. And we see it as a tool to build political power in communities that have long been sidelined by a campaign finance system that is dominated by a narrow and unrepresentative segment of the population in terms of race, gender, socioeconomic background. So the way they do this, public financing programs give small donors a bigger voice in campaigns. And then as a result, they give small donors and constituents a bigger voice in government. And so, as you mentioned, there are several kinds of public financing programs out there. One of the more common programs these days is small donor matching, as the name suggests. Participants to, in the program receive a multiple match on small contributions, so that's typically contributions under $200. Uh, New York City has as one of these programs, and under that program, candidates receive an eight-to-one match on contributions. And so that means if you or I give $10 to a participating candidate, that 10 is matched with $80 in public money, which results in a $90 contribution to candidates, which is significant value to candidates. A second kind of program is a block grant style program, which is also known as clean elections programs. And these provide candidates with a fixed amount public funds after they qualify. So you can find these programs at the statewide level, actually in Connecticut, Arizona, and in Maine. And then finally, as you mentioned earlier, there are voucher style programs. Seattle is actually the only jurisdiction with this type of public financing on the books right now. And residents receive four $25 vouchers from the city to give to candidates of their choice. So to jump into funding as the second half of your question there, I I first kind of want to zoom out and talk about the big picture. Because when it comes to cost, I think it's important to note that public financing programs often make up just a fraction of a percentage of a given city or state's total budget. A good example of this is HR1, the the democracy reform package I mentioned earlier. The public financing program in that bill, according to a projection from the Congressional Budget Office, would cost as much as 0.01% of the entire federal budget over 10 years. So, you know, when when you zoom out like that, I think you see how... It's, it's really a drop in the bucket of overall budgets. Again, to get to your question more specifically, sources of funding really vary across jurisdictions. Some use general funds, some use specific property taxes, which is the case in Seattle. In Connecticut, they take money from abandoned property funds, and the list goes on there. Some use tax checkoffs, others take contributions. In the case of HR1's program, the proposed bill would use a small surcharge on criminal and civil penalties assessed against 
corporate wrongdoers to fund the public financing provision. So it's a really interesting and innovative way to finance these programs. And it's, I think, really important to note that across every type of public financing program, there are features built in to ensure that public money is used really carefully. You know, they, these include eligibility requirements that make it so only competitive candidates who can demonstrate support uh, from small donors receive public funds and that participating in the program also comes with restrictions on how candidates fundraise, on how they spend their money. And finally, there is a hard cap typically on how, many, how much public money a candidate can use. So that, That's very interesting. Thank you. So do you have any concerns of possible abuse of this funding method? These programs have so many built-in mechanisms. For example, there are common to every public financing program enforcement mechanisms built in. There are you know, types of ways to do auditing to, to make sure that campaigns are using their money in you know, per, permissible ways. And I think it's important to remember that there are neutral criteria that all candidates have to meet in order to qualify for these funds. So the programs aren't necessarily picking and choosing who gets them. It's who can show that they have enough support already going into the program to show that they're a viable candidate who, who can take on the public funds. And I would just add there, again, echoing what I said earlier, what this reform is designed to do and what our research shows it does is it makes candidates more responsive to their constituents. We've done series of interviews with candidates from jurisdictions across the country who have used public financing. And one of the overwhelming themes from those conversations is how these programs fundamentally change the way folks campaign and who they're talking to on the campaign trail. And we've also done database research to, to show this trend. Uh, we, we did an analysis comparing fundraising habits of publicly financed and privately financed candidates running in the same neighborhoods in New York City. And that analysis revealed that the publicly financed candidates were statistically more likely to raise funds from their constituents than their privately financed counterparts. So what this reform really does is strengthen people power behind campaigns. Right. And that makes sense. So let's say the upcoming mayoral election, candidates will be incentivized to not only engage with maybe the wealthier parts of New York City, but to will also be compelled to reach out to the less wealthy boroughs and, and neighborhoods for donations and engagement. Yeah, we've seen, going, going back to some of our database research, we've seen that publicly financed candidates in New York City specifically are more likely to raise small contributions from more parts of the city than privately financed candidates who are running at the state level in districts in New York City. So uh, yeah, exactly. The, the idea is to make donor pools actually represent the constituencies that folks are trying to represent. And just another point about New York City's program, that's one of those programs that I mentioned earlier that has strengthened itself in the last 10 years. Previously, their match was six to one. Now it's eight to one. So, you know, we, we like to talk about the New York City program because it's, it's really is one of the longest running uh, models out there. That's wonderful and very important with the upcoming mayoral election. 
In the Citizens United decision, the Supreme Court eliminated restrictions on contributions from corporations and labor unions, provided that the entities do not coordinate with the campaign organizations of the candidates that they are supporting. However, certain groups that donate to super PACs, such as 501c4 social welfare groups, do not disclose their donors, making donations difficult, if not impossible, to trace. How is it possible to prevent or track any coordination with campaign organizations if the donors can give anonymously? This is a great question because it is a huge problem in our campaign finance system. These groups that don't disclose donors, more commonly known as dark money groups, obscure donor influence over candidates and really mislead voters. The issue of dark money in our elections is a reality right now, but it certainly doesn't have to be the case There are reasonable disclosure laws out there that have been implemented in jurisdictions across the country that include nonprofits like the ones you were describing on their list of entities that have to disclose their election spending. So these include California, Washington State, Delaware, New York City. And I think it's important to note that dark money spending is really a particularly concerning at the state and local levels where smaller amounts of money can have a substantially greater effect on campaigns. But like I said, there are models out there of how to shed light on this type of spending through disclosure laws. And as I mentioned earlier, there are federal efforts as well to bring this sort of transparency for anonymous groups uh, to to the federal level. So the Disclose Act, which has been introduced in Congress almost every session over the last decade, requires any group that engages in substantial campaign spending at the federal level to disclose the donors that fund that political activity. That's really interesting. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the role of tech giants in the elections. So Mm -hmm. over the past several years, there has been a great deal of speculation on the roles of tech giants, such as Facebook and Twitter in our elections. As a result, The Honest Ads Act has been introduced, but has not yet been passed. Can you explain a bit about the Honest Ads Act, and if passed, how will this legislation impact future elections? Certainly. The ultimate aim of the Honest Ads Act is to increase transparency around online political ads that you might see on Facebook, Twitter, but also on news platforms, and basically any online platform that sells these ads. And... As of now, campaign finance laws regulate television and radio ads, but they do not regulate ads that appear online. So Honest Ads would close that loophole by subjecting internet advertisement to the same rules as TV and radio. More specifically, the proposed bill would expand disclosure rules to cover any online ad that mentions a candidate not just ones that are explicitly in favor of or against a candidate. Typically, the ads that get regulated have that explicit language saying, vote for X, vote against Y. But, you know, common sense tells us that there is a lot of election-related advertising out there that doesn't use that explicit language. But that those ads are still trying to swing the election. So Honest Ads takes a little bit more of a realistic approach to regulating this space. Another important part of the bill is that it would require these online ad vendors, including these tech companies you mentioned, to maintain publicly available databases of all the political ads and who's paying for them, which would allow 
the public to go on and, and know who is behind the content that they're seeing in their feeds, which is really important. Hazel, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you let us know how we can follow you or the Brennan Center and learn more about all the amazing work that you're doing? Yeah, certainly. Thank you so much for, for having me and for having this great conversation. Uh, you can learn more about the Brennan Center at brennancenter.org. We have loads of information there about all of our various work on money and politics, but also on a whole plethora of other issues. So I really encourage uh, anyone who's interested in what we talked about today to head on over to our website, read some of our reports, get to know, get to know some of our work that way. Perfect. Thank you so much, Hazel. Thank you. As mentioned before the start of the interview, we do have some exciting 2021 updates. The proposed bill that Hazel referenced, H.R. 1, for the People Act, was reintroduced in the House of Representatives on January 4th, demonstrating that campaign finance reform, among other measures included in the bill to protect and uphold our democracy, are major congressional priorities. If passed, the bill would have significant impacts upon our campaign finance system. For example, the proposed bill would make the public financing program that Hazel and I discussed during the interview available to congressional candidates, something that has not yet been done before. This legislation has the potential to free congressional candidates from the grips of powerful special interest groups. We will be doing more podcasts on campaign finance in 2021, but for now, thank you for listening.